Hello and welcome to the Tech Podcast from Huawei. In part two of the Goodwood Future Labs exhibition mini-series, showcasing some of the most innovative tech going around the world right now, join me as we see how the digital worlds are being made real. Is this the real life? Is this just fantasy? Caught in a landslide, no escape from reality. Sang Freddie Mercury in Queen's classic and often voted number one record of all time, Bohemian Rhapsody. But when recorded in 1975, I doubt he'd actually considered the technological advancements in virtual reality or augmented reality that we've seen so much of today. If we take a step back a little, we know that reality is often defined as a state of things as they actually exist, as opposed to being an idealistic or a notional idea of them. But what does it mean when you press a button that's not really there, or shoot a laser from your hand that no one can see or feel? Intrigued? Ultraleap's Product Strategy Director, Charlie Alexander, shares his vision of virtual tech using both hand tracking and haptic technology. For this, think of the sort of touch sensation you get from mobile screens or the trigger sensor from your gaming controller. Charlie, over to you. So what we're doing here is we're showcasing our two key technologies. The first is hand tracking. So we use a camera to detect a hand in real time and represent it through a computer. And you can use that for gesture control or controlling elements of the vehicle. But where it gets really, really clever is we can then create the sense of touch in midair with our second technology, midair haptics. And what midair haptics does is it uses high pressure sound to create the effect of touch on your hand. So we can create a spot on your hand and we can then draw shapes with it. So we can create a tap, a warning signal, a triangle, or in something like a passenger use case in the back of the car, we could do really rich media where you can interact with 3D objects, pick it up using the hand tracking, and then feel it in your hand using the mid-air haptics. So for anyone who wants to understand a little bit more about this technology, could you tell us about the haptic uh, technology behind your product? Sure. So we use... Uh, an array of ultrasound speakers, the sorts of things you see on reversing sensors in cars, that sort of thing. Uh, and we, effectively our core technology is a very clever piece of software that combines the outputs from all those speakers to create a pressure point on your hand. And we can drive that pressure point in a sort of 60 degree arc, we can place it on your hand rather than having to come to a fixed point, or we can make it fixed so we can use it to guide your hand towards control for example. That system, you know, with a couple of hundred speakers, will go 60 to 80 centimetres. But in principle, we could fire it a couple of metres across a room if we could find the right application for that. It's a really flexible and adaptable technology. And what's exciting is how our customers and our partners are finding ways to apply this in their real-world use cases. Oh, wow, that sounds incredible. So kind of using that hand-tracking technology and the haptic technologies, how does that change the driving experience in this case? There's two ways of looking at that. The first is, in the sort of more near term, you've got the driver. So one of the biggest challenges for a driver is distraction. So what we've done is we've looked at the challenge of making gesture control really reliable. You know, we've seen gesture controls in cars, first and second generation uh, hand tracking systems today. What we can do is track the hand so accurately that we can interpret a specific hand pose or a specific gesture to tell the car we want to interact with it. And that makes for a much more reliable gesture detection system. Where it gets really clever, to use that phrase again, is we can also return that sense of touch that you lose. Now, when you move uh, controls into mid-air, you lose that sense of pressing a button. You know this, the control's been activated because you felt it on your hand. We can do that, but in mid-air. So we can give you a buzz or a tap or a click and inform you that, yeah, 
you know, we've received your command, and then you don't sort of look down at the center console, your eyes are straight ahead of you. Yeah, so it gives, almost gives that sensation of actually pushing a button like you would. Because yep. I think we've seen a lot about this haptic technology in the gaming industry. Absolutely. So have you taken learnings from kind of other, other spaces like gaming and adapted them to this innovation? Yeah, absolutely. So the second use case we have is the passenger. Now the passenger in a car in the future, no one's gonna be driving. So the question we're asking is, why would you buy you know, a premium brand like a Porsche or a BMW if you're not driving it? You've got, not got acceleration as the key function. Uh, the CEO of Continental recently described HMI as the new horsepower, and this is where we play. So for the passenger, you know, we can do 3D gaming in the back of the car. We can bring really rich, enhanced experiences in. We can interact in 3D like you would in virtual reality, perhaps with a projected image or perhaps with AR, perhaps even with VR in the future. And there you get a premium experience where there's a reason to choose that method of transit rather than a simple pod. You can, we can all sit fiddling on our phones, but why do you want that premium experience? And that's where this sort of massive capability of 3D interactivity with mid-air haptics comes in. Productivity for working, for media, for gaming. Amazing. So what, what kind of other capabilities and other industries do you see this playing out in? And what are the, what's the potential for this to grow? So the biggest thing for us right now is touch-free interactivity. So we've all seen the screens at restaurants. We've all seen the train stations, people queuing in line, tapping away on those screens. People are a lot less comfortable with that. We did a study recently that showed that 85% of people would prefer to interact in midair than to touch the screen. May not be a surprise, I can see from your face it isn't, but actually it's intuitively there's a space there. And what we're doing is we're taking our hand tracking technology into a product we call Touch Free, where we can effectively move the screen out into midair and you can interact as you would with a screen, but at a distance from it. Super accurate, super quick. And then, for companies that want a really rich experience, we can bring the sense of touch into it as well. So we can bring the taps and the clicks that you would get from touching the screen onto the user's hand. And you've kind of touched on it there. You've done a lot of research into kind of human psychology and what people like to do and in their day-to-day -day experiences. How has COVID and the pandemic changed your business model? It, it's been huge. Um, this, this time, 18 months ago, I'd been at trade shows. Uh, now we're focusing really heavily on the day-to-day -day interactions of the consumer in transit, in cinema foyers, in quick service restaurants. So for us, we've seen a huge pivot. You know, automotive is one of our core segments. Spatial computing, so extended reality, remains. And now we've really spun up the out-of-home interactive market. So kiosks is now a key market for us. And from our point of view, we put a lot of effort into it. We've invested in developing a whole new product and it's really starting to spin up. It's a really exciting time. Can you tell us a little bit more about the types of companies or any brands that you're working with to implement this into their uh, products? So typical examples would be people who manufacture kiosks for bus stations, for airports, uh, railway stations. I hope that gives you enough of an idea of what we can <laughs> and can't talk around. We get a lot of um, privacy questions and uh, confidentiality questions, but uh, primarily as the brands roll out their deployments, it'll become extremely obvious who we're working with. Yeah, so we can expect to see this type of technology as mainstream when we're just getting on the tube to commute in the morning. That's our aim. So what is, if you could say in the next three to five years, what's your dream? For me, um, there's three things I'd love to see. I'd like to see Ultraleaps technology absolutely everywhere in the spatial computing market. So we announced a tie-up with Qualcomm uh, last year. Uh, that will see our hand tracking being available in headsets. You know, around the world, we've got our first product, which is the Vio. VR2 on our stall here today. 
Second piece, mid-air touch-free interactivity is the norm. So let's get away from those touch screens. Let's get people interacting safely and enjoyably, but also hit those key metrics of speed and of reliability that kiosk companies demand. And then with a very selfish glance, because I, I love the auto industry, I want to see our technology deployed in production cars. And we make some great steps there, which I can't give you a huge amount of detail on. We've done some great public demos with the likes of DS Automobile, with Hosseden in Japan, with Bosch and with Harman. So super it's super exciting. Coming. Sounds like there's more to come. Thanks, Charlie. I don't know about you, but I'd very much welcome more hand gesture technologies in public spaces like restaurants and train stations in the near future. And the fun doesn't really have to stop there. Hand gestures are also taking over the realm of sports and gaming. I caught up with Jim Sefton, Managing Director of Hado UK, the world's first techno sports combining technology and sports. The easiest way to visualise Hado is pictured dodgeball, but instead, players are wearing a virtual reality headgear, throwing powerballs at each other. And that's Hado. Let's hear what Jim had to say. This year we're here partnered with Huawei, uh, who are our partners looking at 5G research projects to expand Hado beyond what it already is, which is pretty amazing, but we're looking at now being able to take a sport that normally has to be played physically and allow you to play it both physically but remotely against teams in other parts of the world. Could you tell us a little bit more about the Hado sport and the types of um, experiences that consumers can expect to walk through when, when they're using this? Okay, so Hado is the world's first techno sport. It merges physical and esports through augmented reality. Uh, a match lasts 80 seconds, normally played on three versus three on a uh, six meter by 10 meter court area. It was created in Tokyo five years ago and it's now played in 36 countries. Uh, we brought it into Europe three years ago and this year we'll have the first European Championship with 16 countries putting national teams in. So it's growing at a huge, huge rate. And the thing that's got that's really drawing people in is the immersive nature of the sport. So you're literally inside a computer game for all intents and purposes, but you're still without any loss of connection to the real world. So Jim, could you tell us a little bit more about what the Hado experience is like from a gamer perspective and what they can expect to, any tips and tricks you have for yep. gamers? Okay, so the Hado game puts you in a, a six meter by 10 meter arena uh, with a headset on. That headset isn't a VR, it's an AR headset, so you still have complete connection to the world around you. But it overlays the graphics, merging it with, with what you can see. So in front of each player, you can see four life markers, which are what you're, you're trying to, you're going after. And in the middle of your vision, there's a crosshairs. So as you move your head, the crosshairs tracks with you. So you fire at what you can see, basically. So you're aiming with your eyes and your head. Cast your hand forward, and an energy blast comes from your hand out towards that point you're looking at, hopefully towards the opposing team's life markers, hitting them and, just, and preferably destroying them. When you wipe out all four, the opposing player is knocked out of play for three seconds, and your team earns one point. Obviously, you don't want to get hit, so the only way you don't get hit is to move. So you can, you can duck, you can jump, you can run, you can do whatever you need to to get out of the way. You can be as mobile as you're physically capable of being, and everything will keep up with you as you go. So what we see is first-time players move about 15 to 20 metres in an 80-second match, whereas a tournament player will shift 100 to 120 metres in an 80-second match. So as you become more and more confident in the, uh, in the environment, in the sport, your movement picks up, your speed picks up, and it becomes more and more of a, uh, a physical challenge uh, to compete at the higher levels of the sport. What can a player expect to experience if they go from amateur level to the final tournament stage? I suppose it's a, it's a as you go through, there's a bit, there's quite a big step up in the skill level of your opponents. Um, when you talk about the the Japanese are currently absolutely dominant in the sport, 
unsurprisingly, they, it was created in Tokyo, uh, which is why it's called Hado, because Hado is the Japanese word for energy blast. And for anyone who's played Street Fighter, the Hadouken move is energy blast power fist. Um, uh, but the, the, the teams out there are, are hugely experienced. Their tournament circuit over there is much, much more advanced than our own, uh, which is something we're definitely looking to uh, uh, change. Our aim is basically to catch the, the Japanese scene within the next three years and therefore bring our players up to that level. But at the moment, if you play against those guys, they are literally just going to snake around your shots. Uh, they'll, be, they'll be on the ground bobbing and weaving and just everything you fire at them just goes wide and misses. And they never, ever miss firing back. That's right. So you heard it from Jim here. And I think we're looking for a European challenger. So hopefully there'll be a UK player who can challenge the Japanese in the championship finals. So you mentioned a lot of this technology and this trend is emerging from Southeast Asia, like Tokyo. How is uh, the European and the rest of the world market adopting this type of technology? Very rapidly. Uh, we're seeing Europe is, is currently, only because of the recent lockdown, the lockdowns things over the last year or so, uh, it was the fastest growing market and it's already starting to return to being the fastest growing market for the sport. Uh, China is currently, because they've opened up a bit earlier than us, uh, uh, expanding slightly quicker than Europe but uh, we're expecting that trend to have reversed completely over the next six months. Absolutely, and I, and I hear a lot from a lot of the people we've spoken to at Goodwood today that um, the esports arena and the community is uh, expanding rapidly. Um, how do you think that VR and 5G technologies has a role to play in this type of um, evolution? Well, there's two key, two key areas we've talked about VR specifically, where by being able to have the processing power up on the cloud, uh, but uh, linked down to a headset through 5G, means that people aren't having to wear backpacks for mobile, mobile arenas, and also they're not having to have heavy processing centers at each arena. They can invest in a single uh, core location, making the price point of opening new locations, therefore the price point to customer lower. Interesting. So Jim, you've been at Hado for quite a while now. How have you seen the kind of consumer uptake of this eSport taking up, and what have the the main changes in this environment? I think, suppose the when we first started off, uh, we saw it, I suppose, an error on our path, more, more, more gamer-orientated, and we went down that route with the way to draw people in, until we realized that actually the, the people that it draws in aren't necessarily esports players, but uh, people are used to normal physical competitive sport, and it gives them a totally new way to experience sports. So they're, they're not quite into esports e gaming because it's still so, phys so physical, but they've got all that computer graphics around them, all that element to it. And what we've seen is that um, it's grabbed the attention of the UK military. So we've already uh, put arenas in at uh, RAF Holton with the RAF, who are now using it for physical fitness training. And over the next few weeks, we're demoing to both the uh, Navy and the Army, who are both looking at taking the system on. That is super interesting that you mentioned that. And this is the type of technology that we're seeing lots of vertical industries adopting nowadays. So what types of um, potential can you say about where this technology will be going in the next five years or so? Okay, we see a lot of growth amongst younger players, not because it's a young person sport specifically, it's generally an adult sport. However, what we found is every time we've taken this into a school or a, 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 a youth environment, that when you've got uh, people on the pitch playing, they're seeing it as a game. So that they're viewing it from the purpose of esports, they're seeing this as a computer game. And at the same time as they're going, this is amazing, I'm playing a game. You've got their parents, or if we're in a school, the teachers at the sidelines going, I've never seen them move this much, sweat this much, this is incredible. I can't get them to exercise, and yet they're here on the pitch playing game after game after game, because they're just seeing it as a game. Uh, so we see a huge growth there, and obviously physical fitness amongst uh, a lot of the children in the UK has become a big issue over the last year. And this could be a, a big help to turning that trend around. Amazing. So there is a huge potential here in the future of physical education and also learning and, you know, the whole kind of e-learning 
as we come into the post-pandemic world. How do you think the COVID and lockdown has impacted the business? Obviously, like any sport or any leisure industry of any kind, uh, it's, been, it's had a very hard impact. But what we're seeing coming out the far side is a massive desire for people to get out, to do things, to play sports, to do social events. Um, so we're seeing the physical location we got up are literally back to back with bookings for groups coming through. Uh, shows and events that we're going to, we're constant with the flow of people wanting to come play, to find out, to be involved. Uh, and so there's a massive desire for people to get out and try new things and do new things. There's obviously, I think, a huge demand for this. And I think the breadth of the type of audience that you can reach with this type of technology. What is your ultimate dream for Hadou? Well, my ultimate dream is for a UK Hadou team to lift the World Cup. Wow, just fascinating stuff there. What surprises me the most is just how quickly AR and VR technologies have been adopted, from the future of travel right to global esports tournaments. There's certainly a huge demand for this, and perhaps Freddie was right all along. There is no escape from reality. Virtual reality, that is. So if you enjoyed this, make sure you subscribe to the Tech Podcast to be the first to know when a new episode is out. Thanks so much for listening and see you next time.